from, from the very beginning, when you look at the very heart of the Abrahamic covenant, look at Genesis 12, 3. Abraham was meant to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's us. Mm-hmm. We're the ethne. We, we, we non-Jewish Christians are the proper inheritors of the Abrahamic promises. You see? And, and they would just walk you through the, the Old Testament scriptures. And, and there was even a name given to that uh, in early Christianity. You find it in Eusebius's church history. He calls it the Demonstratio Evangelica. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we are on our Promises and Fulfillments season with Chapter 14, which is Episode 14, Covenant in the Early Church by Dr. Ligon Duncan. It's in Part 2 of Historical Theology Within the Covenant Theology Book by Reformed Theological Seminary Faculty and published by Crossway. So we're very excited to have Dr. Duncan today. Just as a reminder, we have some links on our show notes. One really important one is the Crossway link. If you click that, it'll go to their website where you can order a copy for yourself of the Covenant Theology Book. Follow along with us. There's also links to find a Reformed church near you, including May Park churches. There's also a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters, so you can find like-minded podcasts and join those as well. So without further ado, I'll have Peter further introduce Dr. Duncan. Yeah, we got Dr. Ligon Duncan III. He's the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary the John E. Richards Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology and president of the RTS campus in Jackson. He does a couple of things. So we're super glad to have you, Dr. Duncan. Thanks for coming on our show. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you. Yeah, thank you. So we'll just kind of open it up. Obviously, what's what's kind of brought you to writing this chapter specifically on the covenant in the covenant theology book on the early church and the focusing on the early church fathers? Well, I'll give you a really long answer to a short <laughs> question. Yeah. Uh, that, that goes back to my childhood because you, huh. we were talking uh, off air before we started, Nick, about your background and I, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, but like a lot of 
Bible-believing, conservative theologically evangelicals in the 1970s, I was influenced by dispensationalism. Hmm. So even though I was reading J.I. Packer and John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, 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 R.C. Sproul and others as a teenager in the 1970s, the dispensationalists were still the great popularizers hmm. in, in the 1970s. And uh, so things like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth yeah. uh, fell into my hands as a 13-year-old. Uh, and so, I, you know, I was, I, and, and it, it didn't occur to me that there was a contradiction between the dispensational system of theology and classic confessional reform theology. Hmm. And so as, as a young person, though I had memorized the shorter catechism, and I was under the faithful preaching of a confessional reformed minister who I loved and who was a wonderful pastor and was preaching ex expositionally through scripture and just giving me sound reformed theology. It didn't hit me that there was a biblical theological disconnect between some of the things that I was reading and what I was hearing at church and what I was getting in the confessions, et cetera. And it was not until I got to seminary. I mean, if, if you had asked me when I was 14 years old, 18 years old, even 20 years old, what is covenant theology? I'm not sure what answer I would have given you, or if I would have even known what you were asking me. Huh. And so when I went into my biblical theology, my Old Testament biblical theology course in seminary um, with, a, with a guy named O. Palmer Robertson. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, I went into that classroom, Nick, a little suspicious and it took him about five minutes to rock my world. And uh, I, fell, I fell in love with covenant theology in that Old Testament biblical theology course with Palmer Robertson. And I became interested in the historical development of covenant theology. Mm -hmm. And there, there has been in the 20th century, and really it started in the 19th century, a huge historical debate about how covenant theology developed. And I worked under a historical theologian named David Calhoun. Uh, David, uh, David studied church history at Princeton under Ed Dowie. He wrote on the history of missions at Princeton. But before he got to his PhD work, he had actually done a lot of work on Calvin and especially Henry Bullinger in Zurich. And Bullinger is an important person often overlooked for the development of covenant theology. And in the 20th century, there were scholars that attempted to set Calvin and Bullinger in opposition on issues like covenant theology. And because David had worked in Bullinger in primary sources, he knew that that was wrong. You can't set Calvin over against Bullinger. There are not two competing streams in the Reformed tradition, but there have been a lot of people that have tried to argue that. And so I started working on sort of the development of covenant theology from Calvin to Westminster. So from the 16th century Protestant Reformation to the 17th century post-Reformation uh, confessional formulations. And as I began to do that, I, I wondered to myself, hey, are there any precursors to this? In other words, are the reformers quoting earlier sources as they're articulating their covenant theology? And of course, the answer is emphatically, yes, they were. 
uh, because their argument was not, hey, um, we're the Bible guys, and we're the first guys in Christian history to ever understand the Bible, yeah. so it's us against church history. No, their view was, yeah, we are the Bible guys, but we also are interpreting the Bible um, in a way that is uh, uh, corroborative uh, in, a, in a way that is compatible with the best of the interpretation from early Christianity uh, till, till now. And especially in quoting the earliest church fathers, you know, going, going back to Justin Martyr or Melito of Sardis or uh, Tertullian or Irenaeus or uh, not, not just Augustine, but, but fathers before mm. the time of Augustine, the reformers were they were familiar with what they said, and they were familiar with what they said about the covenants. And so um, I, I, that's how I got into it. I, 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 it. That ended up being my own doctoral work. Uh, I went to the University of Edinburgh and worked with a man named David Wright, who is an expert not only in uh, early Christian studies, is what they call it now. Used to, they call it patristics, or the study of the church fathers. Now they call it early Christian mm -hmm. studies. He was not only an expert in early Christian studies, he was also an expert in uh, the theology of the Reformation. He uh, translated uh, Martin Bootser's Commonplaces. Uh, he was the editor of the new edition of the uh, uh, Calvini Opera Omnia, all the works of, of Calvin. You know, so he's an outstanding patristic scholar and Reformation scholar. And I worked on the covenant idea prior to the Council of Nicaea. So I was really concentrating on the late first century, second century, uh, and, uh, and third century. Mm. Yeah, that's a, cause I know the first footnote on chapter under chapters, this is kind of a chapter distillation of your, of your PhD dissertation. And so you kind of answered this, but so what you're saying is that the reformers weren't the first covenant theologians, right? And they didn't claim to be, uh, you know, when they were they were responding to two errors at the same time. They were responding to Roman Catholic errors. You know what? You, sometimes you might ask yourself the question, why didn't Luther develop a covenant theology? Mm, well, part yeah. of the answer is Luther is very aware of the nominalist tradition in late medieval uh, Roman Catholic theology, which takes the covenant idea. And, and infuses really bad synergistic Roman Catholic soteriology and sacramentology in it. Mm -hmm. And so Luther was allergic to covenant theology because he associated it with nominal late medieval Roman Catholic theology. Yeah. Calvin and Zwingli uh, are not uh, inoculated against uh, the theology of the covenants by that experience. They're aware of a, a much more healthy frame of that in early Christianity than, than Luther was. And so they, they wanted to say, not only is the Bible on our side as Protestants, the, the best of early Christian theology is on our side. And all we're doing is we're recovering something that the early church understood. And, uh, and so the, their quotations of the fathers on covenant thought are replete. Uh, and, you know, whether they're getting those from, there were collections of quotations from the fathers that circulated 
uh, in the late medieval and early Reformation period. And then, of course, there were editions of the fathers uh, that were available to uh, the various theologians of the Reformation. And Calvin, of course, is famous for not only being uh, uh, well-versed in exegesis, but also well-versed in the church fathers. In one of the early debates, you know, there were, there were all these debates between Protestants and Roman Catholic um, theologians in the early days of the Reformation. And there's a famous debate in which the, the, the main Protestant spokesman is, is losing badly on the grounds of church history. And, and young John Calvin is there, and he stands up and he begins to cite the church fathers from memory hmm. uh, uh, and, and giving quotation after quotation in which their uh, articulation of theology is in agreement with the Protestant huh. Reformation on those various things. And so the, 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 the early Reformed theologians are very concerned to show that they are not introducing a new theology. Uh, that it is, in fact, their Roman Catholic opponents who have introduced a new theology that deviates from the theology of the best of early Christianity. And they, they did the same with regard to covenant thought. Yeah, that's, that's a great background, because I think so many people, including myself a while ago, thought that the Roman Catholic Church was the initial first Christian church. Yeah. And what the reformers did is they went pre-Roman Catholic Church. What and right. we're going back to when these events take place in your chapter. Um, you know, who are the main people that you discuss? Maybe you can rattle off some names for the audience, but yeah. also what's going on in the Christian church and what time in history is it that you're writing this chapter? It's that's good. Uh a, a quick word on how I, I how I got here. I I mentioned that I, I wondered if the reformers were citing the fathers. I found that out. Yes, they were. But then I ran across an article, actually a chapter in a book that had been written by a guy who, at that point, I, I had no idea who he was. A man named Everett Ferguson. Oh yeah. Now, to some of your people on on this podcast, they'll know that name. Everett is a quite famous early Christian studies scholar. He's an American. Uh, he comes from the Church of Christ tradition, so he's not he's not in our you know he's not in our theological camp, but he's a well known uh, uh, early Christian studies scholar, highly respected. Has edited two encyclopedias of early Christianity. Uh, and he had written a chapter called The Covenant Idea in the Second Century. And I stumbled across it in the library. It's in a feshrift for a liberal New Testament scholar from Austin Seminary. Uh, and, but I ran across the chapter. And when I was actually applying to do PhD studies, I was talking with Professor Wright and I, and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, is there really anything there? Is there is there any substance for you to find in the era that you're looking at? And I said, well, I don't know, but I did read this chapter on the covenant idea in the second century. And he said, well, who's it by? And I said, well, it's by Everett Ferguson. And he said, oh, Everett, if Everett says it's there, it's there. <laughs> and uh, so David knew Everett as a patristic scholar. And he knew that if Everett had written a chapter on the subject, then, then he wasn't making things up. 
And so that's really where I started. Okay, so whatever it does is he starts with the apostolic fathers and the apologists. Now, let me just, most people on your podcast will know who I'm talking about, but let me just explain it for people who don't. Mm -hmm. Right after the end of the era of the writing of the New Testament, which runs from roughly AD 50 to, depending on what your views are, either 87 (laughs) or 90 or 95, okay? There's a debate uh, among scholars as to how long it took for the New Testament writings to come into being, and uh, but basically about 40 years, probably. And immediately after that time, uh, we enter into era where people speak of the sub-apostolic or the post-apostolic writers. So the apostles are dead now. The original disciples of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament are, are gone. Uh, and, and now you have another collection of, of authors that come along. These are people like Ignatius of Antioch, um, the author of the epistle uh, uh, Clement uh, to, uh, to the Romans, um, uh, Polycarp, uh, the shepherd of Hermas, uh, Barnabas, uh, these episodes, the epistle uh, to Diognetus, etc. This is a, a, a loosely connected uh, collection of, of authors who are, they're not apostles, uh, they weren't in the company of Jesus' disciples, but some of them have very direct connections with uh, apostolic authors, Polycarp being one of those. Uh, with very, very close uh, connections to the apostolic era. And back in the 19th century, a scholar named uh, J.B. Lightfoot in England, while addressing the question, can we, can we set a terminus on how late the New Testament writings could be? Uh, he asked the question, can we find a collection of writings in early Christianity that we can pretty accurately date because of internal evidence uh, when they were written, that cite the New Testament scriptures as scripture, and therefore give us a terminus for when, you know, how, because in, in J.B. Lightfoot's time, in the, in the 19th century in England, because of German scholarship and liberal uh, British scholarship, there are a lot of people that were positive. Oh, the New Testament wasn't completed until almost the end of the second century. You know, you had this kind of thing going on. Well, Lightfoot found this collection of writings. He dubbed it uh, with the title, The Apostolic Fathers. And um, those writings became very important for, for the dating of the writing of the New Testament uh, letters and and gospels and literature, and but those writings are also really important theologically because they give you a taste for what the earliest post New Testament Christians thought about a whole variety of subjects and how they expounded Scripture, etc. So uh, this article by Everett Ferguson had looked at those apostolic fathers. And uh, 
and then apologists like Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, a, a very famous early Christian convert uh, who, who had been uh, part of sort of the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition, but who had been converted to Christianity and became a defender and expounder of the Christian faith. And um, in, uh, in his apology, his defense of Christianity, and in his letter to Trypho the Jew, uh, you, you get a feel for his understanding of the flow of redemptive history, how the Old Testament and the New Testament hang together, how the, the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation structure of biblical theology is put together. And, and Everett Ferguson had looked at those writings and had sort of expounded in outline what they did with the, the covenant idea. And so I, I just picked up on that and started working through the Apostolic Fathers and Apologists. So that, that means I'm working from, from about AD 95. Now, I actually do New Testament introduction as well, because I, I, I want to ask the question, uh, not did the post-New uh, Testament scholars uh, and writers of the early church from AD 95 to AD 325. So that's the time frame I'm looking at. Not, you know, did they use the framework of the Westminster Confession or did they use the framework of the of the uh, of, of the of the Belgic Confession or did they use the framework of Calvinism? I want to ask questions that are contextual. That is, you know, do, do as I want to see what questions they're asking. And so I want to set the stage by looking at the questions that the New Testament is asking. And, uh, and, and I, I want to let the context set the table for the kinds of questions that I'm asking them to ask. I'm not trying to import 16th century questions into the, the second century. I'm trying to make sure that I'm looking at, at their theology developed from the context of their own debates. What, what are they debating about in that time frame? So I really pick up, Nick, from about AD 95, and I go to, to uh, about AD 325. So I'm looking at primarily the second and the third century. And, uh, and that means not only looking at guys that are early second century, like Justin Martyr, but guys that are mid to late second century, like uh, Irenaeus, who was a pastor in a Roman city in Gaul called Lugdunum. It's modern day Lyon in France, uh, but it was, it was an area in Gaul. So outside the bounds of Italy and the Roman empire where the Roman empire had, had extended into what we call Europe today, Gaul, Southern France. Um, and uh, he was very, very instrumental in uh, articulating the opinions of the of, of early Christianity as to the covenants, and he does this both in his book against heresy, uh, but and also in a catechetical work that he wrote, which we lost for about eighteen hundred years, uh, and rediscovered in the early nineteen uh, hundreds in a Syriac translation. It's called Demonstration of the Apostolic preaching, or sometimes you'll, you'll see it called 
proof of the apostolic teaching. It's translated variously uh, today. Uh, but I also read people like uh, Melito of Sardis, also mid-second century, and then uh, Tertullian, who was a North African theologian, a Carthaginian, uh, who uh, wrote in the late second and early third centuries. Um, I looked at Clement and Origen uh, over in Alexandria. Uh, I looked at Hippolytus and Novation, who were later theologians. Uh, and so th those are the, the main people that I, were looking, I, I was looking at. I was trying to get sort of a geographical range of, of early Christian writers and a chronological range of early Christian writers to get a feel uh, for who knew what. And uh, one of the interesting things that I, I realized is that they, they knew one another and you could actually draw some threads, for instance, from Justin Martyr to Irenaeus to Tertullian. You could tell that they were building on one another and that they were aware of one another and uh that they were interacting with one another yeah that's that's a that's a very helpful um overview of this too and so i think i think this question um we have a, a listener question asking about some of this covenantal thought and kind of some background before it and i know a lot of the church fathers were reacting against some of the second century third century the manichaeanism where it's the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. And so they had this really big split between these two Testaments. And so they came up, not came, they, they saw in scripture, a through line of God's redemptive history. Uh, and so one of, one of our listeners, Brandon Henry asked, so when did church theology post these writers start to differentiate between covenant theology and something else? Because you hear some dispensationalists say, oh no, well, the church fathers were, were seeing dispensationalism um, so when did some of this, this thought, these terms start to change from church history from the second century on? That's, that's good. Um, boy, I, I, it, it, this is, uh, this is my dispensational friends are going to be very, very disappointed <laughs> by what I'm about to say. Yeah. I would love to engage with them in a longer format totally. where I yeah. explain what I'm about to do, but I, I don't mean to be mean or dismissive. But there is no no dispensationalism does not exist until the 19th century. It mm -hmm. is a it is an entirely new. Nobody uh, dreamt up dispensationalism prior to the 19th century, and uh, you know you can you, and you can prove that in a number of ways. Looking at the writings of the Church Fathers, for instance, their views on Israel uh, are all diametrically opposed to and inconsistent with the you know, it, Israel is the cusp and how you interpret Israel is the cusp of all dispensationalism. That's yeah. the big thing. And the church fathers are just in a different universe uh, on that issue. Uh, so here, here's what I would say. What is setting the table for the covenant teaching uh, in early Christianity uh, are, are two rival theological issues. On the one hand, early Christianity is developed out of the matrix of first century Judaism. Now, first century Judaism is already diverse theologically, and you can see that in the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, you've got Pharisees, for instance, 
who have a very emphatic belief in the resurrection and the afterlife. And you have the Sadducees who emphatically do not believe in the afterlife and even mock Jesus yeah. about that. And you, and you have Paul in the book of Acts taking advantage of that debate to get out of a fix. Remember, he stands up and he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection. <laughs> yeah. And all the Pharisees there go, yay, he's on our side. You know, and they all start fighting <laughs> with one another. And he kind of slips out while, while all the commotion is going on. So even in, in the Judaism of the New Testament, there are big rifts and theological debates going on in that, in that Judaism. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Ju Judaism is constantly developing, you know, from that time, even until, until now. Well, er early Christians are articulating their theology coming out of that Jewish framework and they are meeting objections from that Jewish framework to their interpretation of the Bible, because early Christians come into the world already having a canon, right? And what is that canon? The Hebrew Bible. You know, so be before they ever have yeah. the Gospels or, or Acts or Paul's letters or anything else, they've al they too have the Hebrew Bible. And... Um, and especially in a Greek translation, uh, the, the, the early Christian church comes into the world with that canon, but they interpret that Bible very differently from any of the Jewish groups that they're interacting with, whether it's the Essenes or whether it's the Pharisees or whether it's the Sadducees. The early Christians interpret that Hebrew Bible differently, hmm. and they interpret it the way that Jesus and Paul interpreted it. Yeah. And, and thankfully, we've got lots of examples in the New Testament of Jesus and Paul showing us how they do that. And um, so, so you, you've got Jewish uh, interlocutors saying to early Christians, you are not the legitimate heirs of the Abrahamic promises. Mm. And the early Christians saying, oh, yes, we are. <laughs> and, and going right back to the Old Testament and saying, you see, from, from the very beginning, when you look at the very heart of the Abrahamic covenant, look at Genesis 12, 3. Abraham was meant to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's us. Mm -hmm. We're the ethne. We, we, we non-Jewish Christians are the proper inheritors of the Abrahamic promises, you see? And, and they would just walk you through the, the Old Testament scriptures. And, and there was even a name given to that uh, in early Christianity. You find it in Eusebius's church history. He calls it the demonstratio evangelica, hmm. the, the proof of the gospel. And it was a, a way of taking Old Testament proof texts and saying, see, Jesus fulfills these prophecies, and these promises were given to us as Christians. So uh, against, the, uh, against their, their Jewish interlocutors, early Christians are arguing uh, for the promise and fulfillment motif of the Old and the New Covenant, mm. and especially of the Abrahamic Covenant and its fulfillment in the New Covenant. So you've got 
you've, you've got Jewish people saying you're not the legitimate heirs and inheritors of these Abrahamic promises. We are. And the early Christians saying, no, 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 we are the, the legitimate heirs of the Abrahamic mm -hmm. promises. And so they're appealing to the covenant idea in the context of that argument. On the other hand, you have especially Gnostic and proto-Gnostic and Marcionite groups, and most scholars today will make a distinction between Marcion and Gnosticism. He, there, there are similarities between uh, Marcion and, and, and Gnostic thought, but there are also discontinuities between Marcion and Gnostic thought. And so in that kind of thought, you mentioned this when you mentioned Manichaeism, there, there is this hard discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New. There, in, in almost all forms of Gnosticism and in Marcion's writings, there is a rejection of the Old Testament. And usually it's a rejection of the Old Testament on the basis that the Jewish God is not the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a divide, a hermeneutical divide that is that's based in a doctrine of God. And it's a rejection of the Old Testament God as the one true uh, and living God. And a lot of that is based on Gnostic views of, um, of, of material reality. For, for Gnostics, for most Gnostics, um, the material is, is sinful. Uh, it's, in, it's inherently bad. And uh, escape from the material is salvation in, in most Gnostic forms yeah. of thought. And consequently, because very clearly the creator God of the Old Testament created this material world for the Gnostics, he's bad. Mm. And, and he's not the one. Uh, you know, there's, there's sort of a Platonism uh, in, in Gnosticism that believes in one God, but he's not connected at all with the material world. Hmm. And uh, this actually ends up having a pernicious effect on Christology later on in, in about 150 years. But in the second century, the big battle is how, how, how then do you relate the Old Testament to the New? The Gnostics say uh, the, the Old Testament, you know, has nothing to do with the New Testament. You know, Jesus came to do something completely new. And you, you have people like Marcion who will go through Paul's letters and through the Gospels and will try to excise all the Old Testament that he can from it. So he'll get rid of Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, and then he'll try and edit as much of the Old Testament out of the Gospel of Luke mm. that he can. And then he'll write um, prefaces to the letters of Paul, and he'll try and expunge the Old Testament from Paul. But he can't do it. Uh, and Tertullian will take his own editions and turn them yeah. against him yeah. in his great work against Marcion. But again, there, the early Christian scholars, the, the writers of the second century and third century, will meet Marcionism and Gnosticism and their denial of the continuity of redemptive history. And they will say, no, the covenant showed the overarching plan of redemptive history. The old covenant and the new covenant are part of one 
covenant of grace uh, that God is 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 using to bring about uh, His purposes uh, in the history of salvation. And so the covenant idea becomes important both to argue against Jewish interlocutors and Gnostic interlocutors mm. for the continuity of redemptive history. And, uh, and, and that's, what I, that, that's what I started seeing as mm. I was reading the early fathers. And I realized, wow, the reformers were not just sort of pulling quotes yeah. out of context. Yeah. They were actually going back and they understood that argument that was going on. And they were saying, hey, we agree with the church fathers in, mm. in how they expounded scripture, how they saw the continuity, the Abrahamic covenant in the new, how they read the Old Testament in the new, how they understood law and gospel. We, we believe in those things. We are agreeing with the church fathers and, uh, and they've just got covenant, covenant, covenant everywhere. Now they've got other terminology too. For instance, the term dispensationalism actually mm. comes from a Latin word uh, dispensatio, which is copiously used in early Christian theology, but not like dispensation. I mean, mm. dispensation is a wonderful word if you use it right. Mm. Uh, it, it can it can designate a particular era or or mode of redemptive history, and that's that's a good helpful term to have in your back pocket, unless you infuse into it the theology of dispensationalism, which again is not the, the original way that that term is being used. Dispensatio is the Latin translation of the Greek word uh, oikonomia, from which we get the word economy. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And in, in early Christian theology, basically they divided theology between theologia and oikonomia. And, uh, and, and theologia, theology, is what we would call theology proper. It's, it's what's about God, God in himself. And oikonomia is what God is doing in the world. Hmm. And, and so dispensatio is the translation of that Greek word in Latin. And, uh, and, 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 and you might see naturally how that would get used in biblical theology, in, in redemptive history, in explaining God's plan in the world. And that, that, that word dispensatio and also the Latin word dispositio, uh, which is a similar word, will get used a lot in the early Christian writings in Latin. <clears throat> Uh, and, uh, so that, that's, that's just a quick sketch yeah. overview to your question. Yeah. Maybe to sum it up quickly, it, it sounds, it sounds like the, and you say this in your chapter, it sounds like the early church fathers were great old Testament theologians. And so they saw this covenant idea coming from the old Testament, not just separating new Testament theology right. from old Testament. They saw this as like, Oh, this is also in the new Testament as well. But they were right. specifically kind of theologians because that's the Bible that they had. And then that's right. they saw the New Testament too. So that's that's that's, that's right. helpful. Yeah, that's helpful kind of background for this stuff. As yeah, well. they read the Old Testament as a Christian book. It wasn't a shadowy pre-Christian, sub-Christian book. It was Christian scripture. It yeah. was to, to to use the language of Jesus in Luke 24, it's about Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, yeah. You know, the, the, they were writing about him. Yeah. And uh and so they had that fundamental posture about the old testament cool i love it that brings up a really good part of your chapter i loved and i'd love for you to explain to the audience is uh, on Arrhenius. uh plays a huge part in that 
combining the canon of the, the Old Testament and also the bringing the Old Testament and New Testament together into the Bible as we know it today. Uh, could you explain that part, how, how that was something that he was very significant in? And also the term covenant and testament are somewhat related. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just, to, just to run over terminology, and then I'll talk about uh, Arrhenius and, and the canon of scripture. Um, the, the, the English word covenant uh, translates uh, the, the Greek word diatheke, uh, you know, and, and, and there are all sorts of debates about what mm -hmm. diatheke yeah. means, and there are all sorts of debates about what the English word covenant means or ought to mean. In between those two words are, are the Latin translations of the Greek. And interestingly, usually Greek is the more precise and nuanced uh, language theologically than Latin. Latin is usually less precise and nuanced than Greek. Greek will usually have eight terms for what there's only yeah. one Latin word to translate. But interestingly, uh, there are at least three Latin words for the for, for the English word covenant and for the Greek word diatheke. Uh, Latin uses the word pactum, P-A-C-T-U-M, pactum. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can hear the English word pact or compact, like Mayflower compact, or to make a pact with someone in that uh, Latin word pact. Pactum. It's, it's one of the translations of diatheke. Another translation is testamentum. Uh, and uh, that Latin word comes into English as you hear it in the word last will and testament. When someone dies, they leave a will. It's formally called a last will and testament. Mm -hmm. And that, that word is a, is a Latin translation of covenant. And then uh, there's also a Latin word called foedus, F-O-E-D-U-S, which is, is a translation of the Greek word diatheke, from which we get the word federal, as mm -hmm. in federal government. That's why you hear covenant theology sometimes called federal theology, because that's just a different Latin word for covenant. Uh, all three of those words, and possibly others, it's possible that the Latin term instrumentum uh, sometimes ought to be translated covenant, referring especially to writings. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's fascinating. There are a number of Latin terms that translate the, the Greek word diatheke. And uh, so that means when you look at the, probably the reason that Old Testament and New Testament are written on the front pages of the two parts of your Bible is because early Christians understood that testamentum referred to the, the diatheke, the covenant. Uh, and so what it's saying is old covenant and new covenant uh, on the uh, front pieces of the two parts of your, of your Bible, which again indicates to to us that early Christians understood that the Bible was a covenantal book mm. and to read it well, you need to read it covenantally. And, um, and so they even put that on the front pieces of the two parts of the Christian Bible. Now, uh, 
Irenaeus is very important in that. He, you know, he's not the first person to use that language. We, you know, Paul is the first person, as far as we know, uh, to call the writings of the Old Testament the Old Covenant. He does that in 2 Corinthians 3. You know, he says, uh, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the polis uh, diatheke, uh, at the reading of the Old Covenant, there he's probably thinking about the Torah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says Old Covenant there. He's probably thinking about the Law of Moses. Uh, and he's so concerned in Corinthians to talk about the law, what the law teaches. And, and he usually means by that the writings of Moses, the instruction from God that came to us through Moses. And so before the New Testament is even closed, Christians are in the habit of talking about the writings of Moses and the, and the Old Testament more generally as the Old Covenant. Uh, but by the middle of the second century, you have authors uh, like uh, Melito, who are using the same kind of language about the Old Testament writings that Paul have, has used. Irenaeus picks up on this and, and uses it for the, the, not just the, the Old Covenant writings, but also the New Covenant writings. And then he's, he's also very, he, he argues, you know, that the Gnostics are uh, generating their own Gospels yeah. by his time. And in arguing against these later gospels that come along and arguing for the priority of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he will actually appeal to the covenants. And he says, just as there were four great covenants, Mm. there are also, you know, four gospels. And so he'll use the covenants as part of his arguments for why we only have uh, four canonical Mm. Uh, gospels and uh, by the way there, there there is a there's a textual variant in that passage where he does that in against heresies and it's it's very very perplexing because in in the latin version he has one set of four covenants and in the greek version there's another uh set of the covenants uh and and it's it's quite tantalizing which he <laughs> means but it is interesting that he uses covenants to make his arguments and the other interesting thing about it is when he is sent by the Christians in Lugdunum to go to uh, Eleutherus, who is, the, who is the leader of the Christian church in Rome, they call him a man zealous for the covenant of Christ, uh, which mm-hmm. is the only time somebody is called that hmm. ever in early Christian history. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that he writes so much about the covenants and they call him that. You know, mm. he's sort of Mr. Covenant theologian, yeah. and uh, and 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 even his fellow Christians in Lugdunum recognize that about him. You know, it's and I'm sure that's kind of like how we'll, you know, we'll do today with a you know, if there's a pastor who's always preaching on the sovereignty of God, you know, yeah. we call it the <laughs> sovereignty of God, or there's a pastor who's always preaching about adoption, you know, he's Mr. Sonship, yeah. or yeah. you know, whatever, whatever you know, we might come up with. Well, they apparently they did that about. Irenaeus, you know, he was so about the covenants that they called him zealous for the covenant of Christ. And so he is a very important figure for giving us testimony to how significant covenant was as a theological category 
for early Christians. And if you if you look at his demonstration of the apostolic preaching, which is it, basically it's a little catechetical book. It's basically how to teach Christian converts biblical theology. Mm. The outline of it is kind of like Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. Interesting. You know, he, he sort of takes you from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Christ mm. and, and gives you the big sweep of redemptive history. And, uh, and he meant it to be used to, to teach early Christians how to read their Bibles hmm. uh, and, and how the whole Bible story hangs uh, together. So uh, he's one of my favorites uh, in, mm-hmm. in early Christians. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's, <laughs> I like that. He's the, uh, he's the RTS faculty publishing covenant theology published by, by Crossway in the second century. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I love it. Yeah. And so my last question is actually um, a listener question. If, if Nick has anything else after this, I, I think it's a, it's actually a useful question to ask, especially with the early church and covenant. So what, what uses or what kind of understanding um, or lens through the covenant that they saw it, that the early church have that we might today have lost. Mm. That's good. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I definitely think that the significance of covenant thought faded fairly quickly in huh. early Christianity. Uh, and, and I think there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, you know, it, it, if you've ever read any Peter Brown, who is a, a, a tremendous uh, scholar of late antiquity. That's right. He uh, wrote a biography on Augustine, right? Biography of Augustine. He, he wrote a volume called Cult of the Saints, where he talks about how the development of the, of the worship of the dead and of the saints started happening in early Christianity. And one of the things that you can see is the influence of Neoplatonism really changes uh, early Christian hmm. thinking about a variety of things and eclipses some of the uh, uh, covenant thought that would have helped early Christians understand the sacraments, et cetera. Uh, so you, you definitely see by the fifth century, uh, especially in the loss of the knowledge of Hebrew, uh, a loss of the significance of the covenant idea, which makes perfect sense. If you don't know Hebrew, you're going to eventually lose a sense of what, uh, you know, what the covenant is and, and, and why that's important. And, uh, really it's not until the Renaissance that, that scholars in the Western part of the church start coming into contact again with the influence of biblical Hebrew and that whole thought world. And so it's kind of not surprising that the reformers would be the ones that would yeah. sort of uh, rejuvenate covenant theology in the life of the church because they start reading the Bible in its yeah. original language. Yeah, they're the Hebrew scholars they, of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes makes perfect sense. So that definitely happens. And by the way, it happens in both the East and the West, in the Greek-speaking East huh. and in the Latin-speaking West. I mean, Augustine doesn't know Hebrew. Uh, and he really doesn't know Greek that well. I mean, he, he writes in Latin, and uh, so his, his the, though he gives you a pretty good definition of covenant, he'll, he'll call it a, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. That's not a bad 
definition. You'd want to say more about covenant than that, but you certainly wouldn't want to say less about it. He still yeah. knows that uh, in the in the late fourth, early fifth centuries. But uh, but but after Augustine, especially the 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 covenant doesn't have the kind of influence in the theological thought formation that it has from the second century until his time. And I, I think just in the Latin speaking West, what happens is commercial and, uh, and, and legal meanings of those Latin terms overshadow the biblical meanings of those terms. So, you know, testamentum, people only know it via either last will and testament or a business transaction. That's how it gets used in commercial Latin. That's how the word DFAK gets used in commercial Greek. Hmm. Uh, and, and by the way, the big difference between a testament and a covenant is that a testament is, is, is effected when somebody dies. Yeah. A covenant is a living agreement. And remember, Jesus makes this point in the Gospels that one, one of his arguments for the afterlife is to say that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not was the God of Abraham, yeah. Isaac, and Jacob, because a covenant is a living agreement. And if he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom he made promises, they're still alive. You know, yeah. that's Jesus's argument. A covenant yeah, is love it. a relationship between the living, not between somebody who's died and, and somebody who's still alive. And uh, so a lot of that was lost in, in Latin Christianity and even in later Greek uh, uh, Christianity as the distance between mm. uh, them and the Old Testament and, and the Old Testament language uh, increased. And, and frankly, as things like Neoplatonism and, and like synergistic Roman Catholic uh, soteriology, in, mm -hmm. you know, that in, and so even when uh, the late medieval nominalists try and pick up the pactum and use it in their theology, they infuse Roman Catholic synergism into covenant theology, which is not native to, no. to the way it's used mm -hmm. in, in the scriptures. No, in the, no. in the scriptures, the point is the covenant is gracious. You know, God, God in his grace has entered into covenant with Abraham. It's not, you know, Abraham comes from a family of moon worshipers <laughs> in Ur of the Chaldeans. Yeah. Uh, mm. He his the call of God to him is a call of grace. And um, and and that's lost in medieval Catholic theology because they pour medieval catholic soteriology into uh covenant thought which is 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 not native to it mm. yeah i don't know nick if you have one more question then we'll, we'll end it out well i could man this is such <laughs> a fascinating we could i could yeah. ask questions for days but i know you're so busy so i'd probably end with this is just as you're talking i was just writing kind of a roadmap of of the history and the layout which was so incredibly helpful that you laid out. And so what I'm kind of hearing is we owe a lot to the reformers, obviously. And he specifically talked about Calvin and the reformers point to the early church fathers. And, and for a couple names, you talked about Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. And those were in a, those early church fathers were in the first and second century, immediately after the new Testament was written. And then those church fathers were pointing towards the scriptures, the old Testament, 
as well as the New Testament, talking about uh, covenant theology and, and ex explaining the history of redemption and, you know, especially including Paul and the Gospels in the New Testament, um, pointing to the Old Testament. And then, of course, scriptures all point to Jesus. So that's kind of the roadmap I wrote. If you have any last <laughs> thoughts or comments. No, it's true. And, and again, Calvin certainly deserves credit, but so does uh, Ulrich Zwingli yep, and, yep. and Henry Bullinger in, yep, yep. in Zurich. The, the Zurich Reformation really, uh, even before Calvin uh, is, is, is articulating the relationships between the Old and the New Covenant, Zwingli is doing it, and then Bullinger continues to do it. And a lot of the influence, you know, Calvin... Calvin came into his own after he, at least in the English-speaking world, after he got translated into English. But a lot of the connections between uh, England and the continent were connections with Zurich. Mm -hmm. And uh, so covenant theology was important uh, everywhere uh, in, the, in the Reformed world, not just, not just Calvin, but also mm -hmm. uh, Zwingli and Bullinger and, and the others that followed them. So they appreciated, they all appreciated the importance and the contribution of the church fathers. And they, they, you know, they, they were wanting to reconnect with that good, healthy, rich theology in early Christianity. The, 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 way, the way Calvin would put it would, would be this. He said the, the late medieval Roman Catholics um, sort of sifted through the church fathers and they threw out the wheat and they uh. kept the chaff. Uh. And, uh, and he said, what we try and do is sift through the, the church fathers and throw out the chaff and <laughs> yeah. keep the wheat. Yeah. And uh, so th they're wanting not just to read the Bible well, they're wanting to read the church fathers well and see. And by the way, <clears throat> I consistently find that it's when the church fathers are challenged with a heresy that they do their best theology. Uh, that, that when they're responding to a bad articulation or a rejection of something that Christians have uh, uniformly held, they are at their best. So it's, it, it shows you how polemics, you know, we, we shouldn't love to fight, but, uh, but polemics have really helped us in Christian theology. Because when the church fathers had to respond to Jewish objections or to Gnostic objections to Christian doctrine, they did a wonderful job of articulating what the Bible actually does say and affirm. And uh, so that those early Christian polemics, our, our Reformed forefathers really appreciated their faithfulness to the scripture in those early Christian polemics. And those early Christian polemics gave us the framework, uh, which you know we would begin to call covenant theology in the 16th and 17th mm. century. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So I mean, thanks, thanks for coming on, talking about your chapter. Um, it's a it's a dense chapter, but walked us through, walked the listeners through it, and I think it answers answers and it helps ask questions, but also answers some questions that I think a lot of people have about the early church fathers because it's. It's an era we don't know much about, especially kind of grow up in the main line or um, non-reformed churches. It's just not something we talk about all that often, people that we quote. Uh, so going back to their sources, just like the reformers did, 
I think is super helpful for understanding our Bibles. And so thanks, thanks for walking us through this. And thanks for walking our, our listeners through this. Well, it's great to be with you all. And thank you for doing this. I hope it'll be helpful to help people read through the book because you say the whole, the whole book is big. It's a yeah. big book. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my son is reading through it a okay. little bit of time yep. right now. And uh, I think this kind of a, of a podcast is going to be a good companion for mm-hmm. people as they try and work through the book on their own. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for coming on. Um, yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, the questions and, and thanks for Dr. Duncan for coming on and explaining your chapter on this. Absolutely. Great to be with you, man. Yeah, thank you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian theology. <laughs> exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes, and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep, all for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.